Welcome friends back to pilgrimage. Today we are talking about the Bible. Uh, in the first class, we looked a little bit at the structure and the history and the various pieces that make up the Bible. And today I want to talk a little bit more about how we read the Bible in the Episcopal Church, how we hold it. Uh, to do that, I've, I've got some slides in the slide deck. Uh, if you're listening, that's okay. You can mostly listen along. Uh, you might want to come back and take a look at the slides a little bit later, but uh, I want to share those with those of you who are here on video. So the other thing that I want to say about the Bible, um, if you're participating in the in-person class with us, or I guess not in-person, on Zoom class with us, uh, you'll know that I set an assignment, um, and that was to read Genesis 1 and 2. So if you haven't read Genesis 1 and 2, uh, just the first two chapters, only a couple pages, uh, take a pause. Uh, take a pause and read those two chapters before we get started, because the next bit is going to really depend on you having those texts fresh in your mind. So Genesis 1 and 2. And today, I really want to focus in on the question about the Bible. How should we read it? How can we read it? And one of the ways that this often gets framed in our kind of cultural zeitgeist is around the question, can we, should we read the Bible literally? Should we read the Bible literally? I want to dig into that a little bit. So as I said, we're going to be taking a look at Genesis 1, or 1 and 2, two different stories of creation, just the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, um, you have several different things that happen. Um, but if you read, you will have noticed that there's a little bit of a different order if we were meeting together in class, I would have had you read them out loud, and then I would have asked, what do you notice? But I want to lay it out for you. In the first chapter of Genesis, it's a very structured uh, little sort of telling of the creation. And there are seven days, and there's a lot of rhythm to the way that those seven days are told. But on the first day, God creates light. On the second day, God creates the sky and the waters under the dome. God separates the waters. On the third day, dry land appears and plants and trees and seas. On the fourth day, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then on the fifth day, creatures of the sea and sky. The sixth day, animals on land. And then finally, humans. And then on the seventh day, God rests. We'll say more about that first chapter in a moment. But what I want to ask right now is, can you read the Bible literally? This account of creation is often looked to, it's often pointed to as a real question about should you, can you read the Bible literally? And I want to say that to try to read the Bible literally, to hold it as if it's some kind of competitor to your science textbook, it misunderstands the Bible. And I want to do that because 
I want to point you to the next chapter of Genesis. Because in the next chapter of Genesis, the structure comes apart. Earth and sky are made on the same day. A stream rises and waters the earth. And then before there are plants or animals, God makes man. So specifically man. God puts him in a garden. And then God makes him a helper. They're naked and unafraid. And then things get complicated. The order differs. So I find it really difficult to say you can read the scripture literally when we have two different accounts of what some folks would claim is a historical rendering of the first days of creation. Uh, sometimes folks called young earth theorists. And yet, right there in the first two chapters of the Bible, the Bible disagrees with itself. The order is different. So to read the Bible literally in that sense, I think is a confusion in terms. But is this what, is, is this meaning, is this reading it literally, is it meant to end up to science textbooks? Well, no, the scripture isn't asking the same questions we are. The scripture isn't concerned with the same questions we are. So I know that for a number of folks that are coming to the Episcopal Church, that are coming to this branch of the Jesus movement, they're looking for a different way to engage doctrine and, and questions of faith and particularly science and particularly scripture. I'll say it again a little bit later, but to say that you don't take the Bible literally does not mean that you don't take the Bible seriously. And if you don't wanna hold up Genesis one and two against the science textbook, if you don't wanna use it in court to debate evolution, then why would you hold it? How would you hold it seriously? What is Genesis trying to tell us? If it's not trying to tell us uh, that evolution isn't a thing, what, what is at stake in Genesis? This brings us to a way of approaching the Bible called historical criticism. It's a way of looking at the Bible that sets the Bible, sets the text in the history, in the time that it was written. And to do that, I don't know of a really, an example, a better example text than Genesis 1. So, in historical criticism, um, they often talk about the setting and the life of the text. So there's a German phrase, I'm not going to quote you, but it means setting and life of the text. And so we want to take the Bible on its own terms. If we don't want to import our own definition of literalism, we want to take the Bible on its own terms. Let's pay attention to what happens in that first chapter of Genesis. And feel free to open your Bible to that first chapter of Genesis, if you would like. In Hebrew, in the language of the Hebrew Bible, what we sometimes problematically call the Old Testament, but as I said last week, is better called the Hebrew Bible. Especially in the Hebrew Bible, it's important to pay attention to repetition. A repetition is a way of showing emphasis, particularly in Hebrew. And in this first chapter of Genesis, there is a certain repetition. Every time God creates something, God looks at it and says, Tov. 
I'll put the Hebrew here on the slide for you so you can see what Hebrew looks like. And remember, you read Hebrew right to left. So tov, it was good. Tov, it was good. And then after the six days of creation, when God creates humanity at the pinnacle and peak of creation in Genesis 1, God says, tov, mochad. That's the toad mode. It just means good with muchness, or it was very, very good. It was very good. At the end, God says, it was very good. After all these other times, good, good, very good. There's also repetition in the way that some of the things are phrased. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. You hear that again and again. God created in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. Our, our, this is the common English Bible translation, and the modern translators are, are trying to get away from some of the super repetitiveness, but it's the same verb, same name for God multiple times here. God created in image, in the image. There's repetition there. You're meant to pay attention. Incidentally, this is true outside of Genesis and, and Hebrew in general. Uh, it, it even happens in the Greek. Often Jesus says, amen, amen, legon humin, amen, amen, I say to you. That's a way of pointing emphasis. But in the Hebrew especially, there's a moment in Exodus where God speaks out of the burning bush and he's trying to get Moses' attention. And he says, Moses. Moses, more than once, every time you see something repeated in Hebrew, pay attention. It's a big deal. So what is this tov that gets repeated? Why this bit about the image of God in the image of God multiple times? Well, let's talk about the setting and life of the text. Archaeologists and biblical scholars and literary scholars tell us they're pretty sure they know about the time that this text was composed. And they said it in the time of the Babylonian exile. You know about the Babylonian exile. It's in scripture. It's also that um, famous song. Um, How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? In the Babylonian exile, there's a period after Egypt, after independence, where Israel goes into captivity in Babylon. And it's in that context, the scholars say, that this particular creation account crystallizes, becomes important. Why? Well, there's a Babylonian creation myth. It's pretty famous in the scholarly world. It's one of the earliest creation myths we have. It's called the Enuma Elish. Um, and the Babylonian creation myth, it has these capricious gods. It, it's sort of like a, a soap opera for gods as the world turns, but for gods. And in the Enuma Elish, humans are an afterthought. The gods like to torture them. And they send floods to harass the humans and to torture them. And in the midst of this, the scholars tell us, Genesis 1 is written to say, 
Yeah, that's not the God we know. That's not the God we know. Human creation wasn't an accident. Human beings are created on purpose. Women and men both are made in God's image. God intended creation. It was good. It was good. It was very good. This is a form of theological resistance against an empire that would say that the gods are out to get you. God's people say, no, God is with us even in the midst of exile. You can hear a little bit more about what this text might, try, might be trying to say when you know its setting and life, when you know the history of the text. So I've done quite a bit of Hebrew. Let's talk about Greek because some of this holds true. I told you, yeah, repetition in Greek is a bit of a thing as well. But when you get into the New Testament for Christians, our Jewish siblings don't have as much tension around the text. It's really sort of a Christian invention, this literalism, this, this understanding of the Bible that is so pervasive. Um, but it's interesting because Jesus doesn't have this. Jesus teaches most often in parables. Jesus teaches with stories that are not meant to be true. As far as we know, there was no literal prodigal son. Jesus told a story. And much of how Jesus interprets the scripture in front of him is seen as non-traditional. Jesus extrapolates scripture asks people to consider what might this scripture have to say to my life today in a way that made people have to think and have to use their reasonable minds and have to think about what did it mean to read scripture again under oppression. Jesus, remember, lives in the time of the Roman Empire occupying Israel, and Jesus is surrounded by folks that would like to move for independence. Jesus does some non-traditional readings. And Paul, certainly, certainly after Jesus, Paul continues this tradition and really subverts a lot of understandings of scripture and of law. If anything, Christianity ought to be comfortable with stretching biblical texts and playing with biblical texts. At least our founders set up that expectation in the way that they played with the Bible. So I want to come back to that piece I said earlier about just because you don't take scripture literally doesn't mean you don't take it seriously. We tend toward an all or nothing approach in many things in our world, in politics and economics and all sorts of things. But in the Bible, just because you don't take something literally doesn't mean that you don't take it seriously. It's interesting in these classes, often the discussion comes up from Catholics that were never engaged with the Bible. That these, it's in one way a gift because these anxieties just aren't part of their DNA. But on the other hand, I wonder how much Catholics don't want to have to deal with the American like frustrations about the Bible and literalism if they get to say, yeah, we're we don't have a, a in that race. 
just because you don't take the Bible literally doesn't mean that you shouldn't also engage with it seriously. Taking the Bible literally doesn't square with scripture's own sense of itself. And so-called literalism, it, it doesn't square with history either. We looked at Jesus and Paul, but the church continues this tradition. The early church, the mothers and fathers and matriarchs and patriarchs and early teachers in the church, they don't tend toward a literal reading of scripture. In their mind, the highest readings are often allegorical. Uh, there's often these invitations from the early church teachers to dive into the stories and to ask yourself, where do you see yourself in this story? Are you a Thomas? And this often happens with the resurrection stories with some of the uh, early church teachers. Are you a Thomas in the midst of doubt? Are you a Peter or a John running to the tomb? Are you Peter and you get nervous and don't go in? Are you John and your passion drives you in? There is this invitation to read and to put yourself in the midst of scripture from the early church, to take scripture really seriously, but as an invitation to enter in and to dialogue with it. I said it in our last class, I'll say it again. One of the best summations of this approach to scripture is to say, it is better to take scripture as a book of direction, singular, than a book of directions, plural. If you're looking for a set of rules for your life, the Bible's gonna let you down. And the Bible was written over a period of several thousand years across several different cultures, and now is a couple thousand years old at its youngest, and it doesn't have much to say about particular situations in our modern world. So looking to it for a, these are the ways you, you're supposed to do things. Uh, Rachel Held Evans, whose books we recommend as part of this class, she took a, a chance on this idea of the book of directions, plural, and tried to live a year of biblical womanhood and to really comical results the way she said her favorite part was when she stood outside the town square and extolled her husband's virtues. Uh, she had a lot of fun with that. She said more fun than she had when she was trying to knit things out of purple yarn. But you can take scripture as a book of direction. You know, writ large, Scripture invites us into the work of God, into the work of, of what does it mean to believe in a God who is life-giving, who is liberating, who is loving. Just because you don't take Scripture literally doesn't mean you don't take it seriously. So I want to turn, though because Episcopalians can get bogged down in ac academic arguments about the text. I've heard so many sermons in Episcopal churches, and, and I'm guilty of having preached sermons like this too, where the preacher gets into some nuance in the Greek or the Hebrew and, you know, loses the bathwater for the baby or vice versa we can get really bogged down in ac academic arguments about the text. And if you're not a scripture scholar, that's okay. Taking the Bible seriously does not mean that you have to go spend semesters learning Greek and Hebrew. You can take the Bible seriously without being a great scholar. 
So I want to talk about another approach to the Bible, something that's called Lexio Divina. It just means divine reading in Latin. I want to invite you with a particular piece of scripture into this way of approaching scripture. Now, I would tell you it's a good idea to get a study Bible. As an Episcopalian, as somebody who is formed with a rational mind to value science, it is helpful. I really recommend the Common English Bible, um, this one right here. We've linked it in the um, uh, on the pilgrimage pages as well. But this Common English Bible, the Women's Bi Women's Bible, Common English Bible. A couple of my professors from seminary were involved in the making of this, and my. Um, Professor Judy Fentus Williams likes to say they wanted to do a women's Bible that wasn't pink, and then it turned out a little bit pink, um, and I've got pink in it. But one of the things that's really nice about this is it, more than any other commentary Bible combo, it's a, a study Bible tends to have commentary in it, it tends to get to the questions that I get asked most at a church like Holy Communion. So I, I've just opened it up randomly here to a chapter in Exodus, and it's got two inserts, one that is talking about human rights and one that is talking about immigrants. Um, and it gets into feminist questions and questions of uh, poverty and all sorts of really in science. Um, I really recommend that you have a good study Bible. I can recommend more besides this one, but I, I like this one a lot. Have that with you because you're gonna hit times in the text where you go, what is this saying? Why is it saying this? And there are times when there's just no way around. There's problems in scripture. There's difficulties in scripture. One of the things about being a rational Christian is dealing with the fact that there are things in scripture that we find frustrating. Scripture as a whole seems to endorse slavery. Now, some would say it's not chattel slavery. It's not the kind of slavery we knew for the last 400 years in America but it's still slavery. It's still problematic. And we've, as a church, really moved past the idea of endorsing slavery as a good idea, which is pretty not scriptural of us. So it's important to have a good academic commentary to engage with, but if that's where you get stuck, if that's where you get bogged down, it's hard to have scripture be a part of your spiritual life, a part of how you're invited into. And there's a lot of beauty in scripture. Um, I wanna get into one of my favorite passages and get into this question of Lexio Divina. And we're gonna do a particular kind of Lexio Divina today. It's, it's a kind of um, practice that's known as African Bible study. It's, it's only called that because a group of African bishops taught it at the Lambeth Conference, which is our once every decade, all of the bishops in the Anglican Communion, which is the denomination of which the Episcopal Church is one autonomous part, um, but our body of Anglican believers, all of the bishops from all over the world get together about once every 10 years. And at one of those meetings, a group of African bishops introduced this, and that's how it became known as African Bible Study. But this way of reading the Bible, Lexio Divina, African Bible Studies, one form of Lexio Divina, it's meant to ask us to slow down. It's meant to ask us not to read through whole chapters like I just made you do with Genesis, but it's at, it asks you to slow down, read just a few verses. 
the rabbis like to say, if you try to grab the whole text, you can't do anything. But if you grab just a little, just a little, you can do a lot. As an example of that, rabbis will argue over really fine points. One is that Genesis that we just started, it starts with the letter B and bet. Bereshit bere in the beginning God created, but but it doesn't begin with the first letter of the alphabet. It doesn't begin with Aleph, it begins with Bet. And rabbis could make a great deal out of just that. The idea that there's something that happens before Genesis. That God is there before the beginning. So as we engage dyslexio you're going to notice that I'm going to read to you three different translations. If, if we were together and, and when we're together, we'll, we'll do a version of this together as well. I'm going to read this for you in three different translations. We'll pass around who's going to read in the group. But we're going to read three translations. That's something we can do really easily because I created slides. Um, if you want to make Lexio as part of your regular practice of engaging scripture, if you want to do Lexio every day, and I invite you, especially as we look at Lent, to try a new practice, Lexio is a really good one. You don't have to haul around three Bibles. It's okay to read uh, for Lexio from the same translation. But since we're using three, I want you to invite you to hear how differently translators can render the original. So we're going to read this same passage three times for the African Bible study. Each time I'm going to invite you to do something slightly different with the text. So this is the first read through. It's from the first letter of John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. This is the New Revised Standard Version translation. Listen as I read. And I'm going to invite you to identify a word or phrase that catches your attention. That's all. This first read, just a word or phrase that catches your attention. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Give yourself just a moment. Sit with your word and phrase. If we were in a group, I would invite us to go around and just name our word and phrase without commentary from one another, just introducing it, and the next person takes a turn. For me, this time, most times, the word is love, but in this sense, it's the invitation to love, love one another. We're going to read the same 
passage again. This is the second read. This time it's from the Common English Bible. And this is the translation we're using most often at Holy Communion right now. It's the most recently authorized translation by the Episcopal Church for use in church. This time, as you listen, identify where the passage touches your life today. From 1 John 4. Dear friends, let's love each other because love is from God and everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. This is how the love of God is revealed to us. God has sent his only son into the world so that we can live through him. This is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice that deals with our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us this way, we also ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. If we love each other, God remains in us and his love is made perfect in us. Take a moment. How does this passage touch your life today? Again, if we were in the group, I would invite us all to share. And in African Bible study, particularly, it's an emphasis that there's no crosstalk, no cross-examination. When someone shares, the you can respond in a sort of um, a amen or a head nod or, mm, you know, that, that sort of wonderful black church grunt to mm, assent. But any more than that, and it it can move us back up into our mind and out of our heart, which is what the African Bible study asks us to engage. For me, this passage right now, it's been a really hard few weeks. Um, and between the attempted coup and I was honestly amazed by how many emotions I had around the inauguration on Wednesday. And in the midst of it, I have found myself incredibly grateful to be surrounded by a wonderful community of friends, a loving spouse. Uh, and I felt very unworthy of that. And it's wonderful to be reminded that love comes from God. And that when I am loved by others and I don't feel worthy of it, it's just yet one more sign of that amazing grace of God. One time more, we're going to read this same chapter. This time, we're going to read it from a translation of the Bible that is a lot looser. That first NRSV is a very word-for-word uh, -word translation of the original, and it can get a little tricky. Um, it can be kind of hard to read. Common English Bible relaxes that a little bit, and it, it makes it a little easier to read. The message goes way colloquial. Um, it's not directly from Greek and Hebrew. It's by an author, a pastor named Eugene Peterson. And you'll notice, as I read this same set of verses for the third time, the last question that African Bible study asks us to hold is, 
what do I believe God wants me to do or be? Is God inviting me to make any change? From the fourth chapter of the first letter of John. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. A person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. So you can't know him if you don't love. This is how God shows his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. My dear, dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. No one has seen God ever, but if we love one another, God dwells deeply within us and his love becomes complete in us. Perfect love. I invite you to sit with the question, what do I believe God wants me to do or be? Is God inviting me to make any change? For me today, as I read this text, the word of invitation that seems to come is to lead with love. I think often it's a tempting thing to lead with strength or to lead with righteousness, to lead with intellect, with intelligence. How much more could I be invited to lead with love? That may be part of your question. It may not be, but it's what I share with you. When we practice this in the group, uh, we wouldn't, again, give each other cross-talk or cross-examination and just be an invitation to share. So, friends, that's African Bible study and Lexio Divina. We'll talk in a later session about a way in which we can hold scripture in prayer, a way that the church gives us to uh, select certain scriptures and make our way through a good portion of the Bible um, every two years. There's a calendar. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But there is an invitation in this branch of the Jesus movement not to take scripture as a competitor with science or history, not to take scripture literally as a book of directions, but to take the Bible seriously, to make it a part of your journey, to engage these stories and the wisdom that you can find in its pages and let it ask questions of your life. Thanks for spending a little time with me. Those of you who are joining us for the discussion, I look forward to gathering with you. See you soon. God bless.